Hi, this is Greg Kilstrom. Welcome to season three of the Agile World, where we discuss customer and employee experience, organizational and workforce transformation, and how business can adapt and continually improve in an Agile age. The Agile World podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full stack technology services, talent services, and real world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, you can go to my website at theagile.world and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile World podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the gap between leadership, HR, and DevOps in many organizations and how aligning them can bring better results to both the individuals within the organization as well as the success of the organization as a whole. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Duena Blomstrom, co-founder and CEO of uh, People Not Tech and author of the book, People Before Tech, to her second time on the show. Uh, Duena, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, looking forward to talking again. Um, so let's uh, let's get started by talking about um, this disconnect that I mentioned before, this disconnect between leadership, HR, and, and DevOps. Um, how about if you start by describing it for us? Like, what's what are some of the challenges? Oh yes, where where to start? <laughs> Gosh, um, haven't we dove right in? Let me try. So, a little bit of, of history of how I ended up um, stumbling on this issue in itself is I, I was in a, almost a, what I would say was a completely different industry. Although is there really ever a different industry than people and agile? Um, and when I when I started focusing solely on agile, really, and uh, on the, the way the teams need to be enabled to, to function in agile, um, it was because I had arrived at this concept, which was getting me all up in arms, called the human debt, which is, um, as I explained in some of my articles, essentially the human equivalent of the technical debt. Um, which we're all familiar with if we've ever written a line of code or worked in a technology environment. Anytime you cut any corners, anytime that you you know you've made the wrong decisions from a, from an architectural point of view, all of those things accumulate over time and they create technical debt. Almost the same exact concept, but for humans, where um, all of the conversations we should have had about the well-being of our employees, all of the joy at work, the satisfaction, the happiness, the remuneration, whatever else you want to call it, that hasn't been really resolved. All of those things have accumulated into what I call human debt. So when I arrived at this humongous indignation, um, I started looking more closely into kind of what could be causing this and and where is it that the most amount of knowledge on how to resolve this would be. And I was surprised to see um, what seemed to me to be two different distinct communities. And I think anyone that's interested in these topics would have noticed this. So if you even look at LinkedIn these days, forget any other place, you see that there is um, an HR community, quote unquote, although obviously it has many people from other parts uh, of the organization. Um, and then there is an agile community or a DevOps community, right? Although obviously that too has thankfully some, some intersection with the other bits of the organization. But even then, the two types of discourse are extremely separate. And also equally, if you look more in depth, one of these two parts seems to be the holders of culture and the the ones that understand the most what it takes for people to be efficient in an agile world. And unfortunately for us all, it isn't the people 
always that we are paying to be taken care of this, meaning the HR, but rather the DevOps community. So when I've noticed this, um, I, I, I just thought this cannot do. We can't possibly be hoping to steer big organizations or create new startups or or kind of uh, move around in a world where there is this disconnect and this big gap between them. And this is the root of why we have this human debt. So how, how has the uh, global pandemic affected this um, this phenomenon. Gosh, how has the global pandemic affected us all? I feel like we still <laughs> don't have an answer. Every day that passes seems like it has more um, studies and more statistics and less and less of answers. But um, I yeah. think what we have seen, and I, I think we've talked about this before, which is kind of sad that it's the same situation in a way. Um, what we have seen is at first an, an, an instant amount of huge openness, if you wish, to the topics about uh, people and humanity at work. Um, And I feel over the last few months uh, that window is closing and that rhetoric is changing. So uh, the pandemic in itself has opened us to these topics and has meant that more bridges were being built between these two communities. Mm-hmm. So in other words, um, ways in which to make teams effective, the topics of psychological safety, which is the central topic between the two of them, the topic of um, how do we in, in interject enough joy in people's lives at work? Um, how do we make sure that work is flexible and human and uh, um, stops with the delimitation between um, our personal lives and our work lives and all that one of those topics were up in the air discussed at large by the two communities so it seemed like that some bridge was being built except when that conversation turned from um, a theoretical and enthusiastic movement between the two bits and and then turned into policies being made and uh, old school execs going back to the office and, and demanding that everyone shows up when all right. of those things started happening that's when we're seeing in some places that the window of the open communication that was so constructive and so needed and it was doing away with um, human debt every day is starting to close. And I fear that if we don't kind of find a way to keep it open, jam it open, um, we're going to we're going to have lost this brilliant moment where essentially the POC of remote work has been proven and we are moving fast, I think, as a society towards truly flexible work that's around outcomes and and truly intelligent work that's around humans and not um, not products only. Uh, I, I'm wondering if some of this, I mean, depending on who you're reading, it's anywhere between like 70% and 90% of employees are considering other forms of employment right now. I mean, I love this concept of, of human debt and, you know, and, and really, you know, especially coming coming from a, a technology background and, and some, some, you know, that that's a meaningful term to me, but, you know, do you, do you think that some of this, um, uh, at least, I don't know if it's actual turnover or just threatened turnover, um, in, in employment. I mean, do you think that's kind of a reaction to what you're saying, which is there, you know, there was seeming open openness and now there is some contraction from leadership of like, Oh, okay, well, let's just kind of go back to, whatever normal was and you know do you do you think that's kind of a almost a rebellion or a reaction to that it is and it's surprising to hear myself saying that because i've spent um, a good amount of time saying we can't be talking about retention and acquisition how to get t- those are old school and and already um tired hr themes 
So I spent yeah. a long time saying that's irrelevant. It's become relevant right now because the, the amount of good people that I hear saying, I will not stand for this. I have a newfound respect for what I need to be doing with my life, what my work life needs to look like. And my company knows that I am good for it. Um, if they're going to in any which way, like force me back into the office or make me stop thinking about these topics that are important in terms of our dynamic in the team and in terms of my self-care, if any of these things are going to be taken away from me, then I, I'm walking. So there's a lot of that. I think, like you're saying, it's it's a bit of a, of a rebellion, yes, to a degree, but also people have understood that there are um, there are practical considerations that have changed. You're a lot more available to the worldwide um, and, and, you know, people with good value will then understand how to translate this new changing reality into better offers fast, unless we find a way to, to keep them by, by offering the, the flexibility they're looking for. So I guess on the, on the flip side of that, in the, when there's more positive outcomes and, you know, the, those organizations that let's just say they, they've learned a bit and, and they're open to learning and adapting and reducing that, that human debt, What's what can a company or what should a company be striving for to, you know, as, as a as a good outcome in that? And, you know, how how should they look at that? I mean, obviously, they're not going to do it all at once, but how can they look at, at making incremental steps and, you know, where, where can they start? Where to start is always um, a tough choice, isn't it? I think yeah. the number one place that all organizations have to um, have to have to think of is um, formulating a, a, a stance around what amount of organizational permission they're willing to give these big topics, right? Yeah. So essentially, if you have a leadership that's conscious enough about the, the enormity of the change ahead, um, then they're going to be forced to think under, wow, this, these are big topics. Everything's up in the air. We need a tabula rasa type of exercise in terms of what work means. We need to allow uh, individuals and teams to tell us what they need. We need to understand how that fits with what we're meant to be making, what outcomes-based work is like, what is individual work, what is group work, where this work takes place, if ever we need to discuss where it is. Um, all of those big themes have to be up in the air, but more importantly, to do that, we have to enable them to talk about and, and mean very human topics, which is a huge shift in thinking from any other conversation that we've ever had in the workplace, where we were expected to have no emotions and be a little robot. So what we need organizations to do is to say, right, this is the time where you can have a completely honest and human conversation, where we need to hear how you really feel and how you really think. And you have our full support in terms of resources, in terms of um, ideology, whatever it is that you need um, to, to be doing these conversations. So what I call organizational permission. So I think anyone who's serious about working on this human debt has to give organizational permission to work on these human topics to their people. And then their people are going to be smart enough to arrive at the more practical things, right? Because then an, an, um, a step lower, if you wish, or a step more important, not lower, in the, at the team level, when team realized that this, they, this is a serious movement, we are now at a time where work is changing and we are expected to work on ourselves and our team. When that human work becomes part of their everyday and it's the, the, the human debt is as important to pay off as the technical debt and it becomes part of what you're doing instead of just continuously delivering and continuously making new features, then it becomes a sustainable amount of, of work on the human debt. So making that space, regaining that power, getting that organization permission, using it to 
to to carve the time, the space, and the resources to do the human work at the at the at the team level, so that you increase your psychological safety, so that you have um, better communication and collaboration in the team, and so that you as an individual feel better. That's what's going to make a, a, a sustainable long term difference. So, can this start at the team level from your perspective, or does it need leadership to kind of drive it? Um, I know it's always better to have leadership support, but you know, how can it can it kind of start within organically? Absolutely. And I've said this over and over again. People don't want to hear that because it's yeah. been uh, 20, 30 years of, of, of waiting for someone to come down and fix it uh, and take the right. wheel no one has been doing. And a lot of places, and I understand this, we all have this tendency, right? We're all tired. We're all overworked. We would all like for someone to kind of um, sort some of our problems. Why should we take even more work on? But realistically, a lot can and should be done at the team level, in particular because this organizational permission that I'm talking about, it is for now implied, right? So unless your organization has come down and you're one of the unfortunate people working for JP Morgan who has been told to go back to the office no matter what and they don't care if yeah. you do or you don't, unless you're in that um, horrible situation, most likely your organization is implying that they would like you to do this thinking um, work and it is open and it is um, done with your best interest at heart. So as long as that implication exists, even if it isn't the truth, even if it doesn't end up being the policy that they put in place, for now, that window of, of this conversation around the human topics is open and it can be grabbed at a team level to start putting in place, to start pushing back against deadlines that you're that are assassinating your time for doing any of the human work, start putting some um, some some human work practices in place in a remote fashion and, and kind of taking care of yourself. This is the time to assume that organizational permission and work on your own self. Yeah, I, I love that. I, and I, I agree. I mean, again, I'm a, I'm a strong advocate for leadership needs to take responsibility for stuff. But at the same time, to I completely agree with what you're saying. You can't just you can't use that as a crutch or as an excuse to not do things. I mean, there's there's plenty of whether you're managing a small team or there's plenty of other other opportunities within an organization to, to do something. And I mean, sometimes even leaders need to see examples of, of stuff done well, right? Mm -hmm. um, yes, and it's, you know, I, I won't claim this is easy, right? I, I am perfectly aware, and we, we work with tens, hundreds of teams, and there is resistance towards the human work at every level. Um, and I'm not even talking about, you know, developers don't want to do the human work. I'm talking about agile coaches don't really want to do it. I'm talking about scrum masters who will, will, will shy away at some point. I'm talking about people who are there so that they work on the human work who still find it difficult. And it's very natural and normal because it is a lot more comfortable to be doing the normal delivery and operational work. Um, and this part is the uncomfortable, unpleasant and, and grating work. Um, but realistically, we all know on some level that this is the part that matters, that this is yeah. the part that's going to carry us. So the, the work just needs starting. And then it becomes a lot easier once you get the right tools in place, once you get the right practice in place, and once you start seeing results of that hard work. I've seen developers in tears when they realize that some of the actions that they were doing, the human interventions, the workshops, the, the things that they were doing to better their teams were actually translatable into different behaviors that showed them performance in their code writing practically. So when once people understand that there are ways in which you can better yourself at your own level, you don't have to wait for the, you know, the 
the white horse of the organization to, to come upon you and save you, um, yeah. then things change and they change fast. But the, the first initial understanding of that is not an easy mountain to climb. Well, let's uh, switch gears a little bit here and, and talk a little bit uh, about your book, uh, People Before Tech. Um, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, what would you like people to, to take away from it um, as, uh, as, a, as some key takeaways? Right. So the book is um, has been written with the hope that it will mend that bridge between the two um, communities, which means that if you are an, uh, an HR professional, then the way that I've explained um, you know, the, 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 the human topics, the way that I've explained in particular, the dynamic in the teams and psychological safety is possibly not as academically uh, heavy as you'd like it. Um, and on the flip side, if you're an agile or a DevOps person, you're probably going to think it's a little bit of, of uh, agile for dummies in, in the tone of the explanation. And that's by, by design. Both of those sides are going to be unsatisfied is because I want the other side to completely get it. Um, I think that the need to comprehend how the two things fit together is what's going to bring the right conversation along. Um, as soon as you have leadership and HR and the people, people, the business people comprehend the need for teams and the need for um, the dynamic that will enable speed in agile and the need for agile in general, then they're going to start asking the right kind of questions that the DevOps community can answer in terms of what they've seen work in teams and so on. So the, the main topic there is let's try and bridge this so that we can start getting doing away with the human that and then the second topic i think that's that's obviously the biggest one for me because i live and breathe psychological safety is that psychological safety in teams is an actually definable and then actionable concept and as soon as you think of it that way then these two communities can and should come together because it's an easy win that shows performance immediately so if you want to start nowhere else to kind of get rid of the human that you should probably start with increasing measuring and increasing the psychological safety of your teams because that will give you the type of change within the organization that will um, kind of jumpstart all of the other topics that we have left in the human debt. Yeah, and I know um, I know we talked about it a bit on the on the last episode that you were on, but just for those that that didn't get the the benefit of listening to that, could you what does psychological safety mean to you? Just so everybody can have that definition. Sure. So psychological safety, and I expect I'm for the record I was writing about this earlier yeah. this week and last week. I expect I'm going to be doing this well into my eighties, but that's <laughs> right. that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> it's necessary. It's not. It's not a problem. I've, I've accepted my fate. But um, so psychological safety is a concept that has been um, studied uh, tens of years ago. It has been discovered by academics and then it has been um, studied in depth by um, a lady by the name of Professor Dr. Amy Edmondson, who is a Harvard professor, who has dedicated her life to the concept and has come up with some amazing books that everyone should read um, on, on how to have fearless organizations, on how to do teaming, on how to have high-performing organizations and, and do innovation and collaboration. So um, she has spent a lot of her time studying the concept of psychological safety. And then the second big moment in the, in the life of the concept has been when a few years ago, Google has um, ran a really comprehensive, maybe the most comprehensive work study um, in the history of, of digital enterprises um, called Project Aristotle, which was looking at what is it that makes a Google team an awesome team. And despite the fact that they had went through a, a large set of variables and had interrogated all kinds of data, what they came back to over and over again was the fact that the teams that were high performing were having first and foremost psychological safety. And finally, the definition that they worked with was 
um, it is uh, it is the the feeling that people have that they are safe for taking interpersonal risks and that they are that they have no need for feeling afraid that they are open honest they they run fast they feel very tight with their team um, essentially they make magic together so that type of a of a feeling when you're in a team that's feeling like it can trust each other that it can work together that uh, you're always open with each other you're authentic you're never biting your lip you're never shying away from from expressing yourself be it to admit a fault or to point out something or to ask a question that team has psychological safety and if they have psychological safety then they have high performance so when these things um, kind of came together the results from the project I total that were then reproduced by um, the Accelerate report that has looked at then 3,600 enterprises and found the exact same findings being reproducible. So they're not a Google thing um, and they're not a hospital thing as in Amy's research and they're not a Boeing thing. They're an everywhere thing. Teams that have psychological safety are incredibly more performant simply because they have this um, sense of ability that they can have no fear and, and run at the best of their ability. So, so if you want to change one dynamic, and obviously it's a, it's a very big concept that involves a number of other uh, behaviors, if you wish, right? So teams that are psychologically safe, for instance, we, we make a piece of software that looks at various um, components of it. And some of those components are the teams are courageous, the teams are flexible, they learn together, they have a great emotional bond, um, they're open with each other, so they speak up and they never impression manage, they're not afraid to look a certain way uh, to their peers. So when that happens, that's when you can make magic with your team and be high performing, in particular when it comes to technology and agile teams. Just the as a as a fellow author, I always like to talk a little bit about the the process of of writing books. So just you know, as you were as you were writing people before tech, um, was there anything that you learned about um, you know or changed about your writing process, or you know, did the pandemic affect it? You know, just like what was what was the process of of writing the book, and and what what did you learn? Oh, gosh, what have I learned? Um, always a, a tough question because I've learned all the things. Everything was new and everything was already kind of slightly known, but not known yeah. enough. Um, but for, from from, a, from the perspective of knowledge, obviously, you, you always gather more. But uh, but from the perspective of what I've learned about myself, I think that was that was quite interesting. The number one thing I've learned is that I'm not as superhuman as I thought I were. <laughs> um, because That's a not, tough realization sometimes. It's, horrible, <laughs> it's a horrible thing, in particular at my age. Like, there's no more time to become a superhuman. So, um, so I, I, it's not my first book. I wrote a book before. Um, but this time around, I got... Uh, Bloomsbury has offered me the book contract exactly um, three days before uh, Boris Johnson closed the UK and and we went into our first lockdown. Um, and my first thought was, this is brilliant. It's the right time uh, for me to write the book. It, but it was just as misinformed as all, all those people that thought they were going to be playing the banjo or learning Mandarin. Uh, because it was not the right time. It was the absolute wrong time. I ended up, this book was written. Um, I, I woke up every morning at 4.30 uh, wrote for six or seven Pomodoros until about 7.30 or so when I became a primary school teacher because we, you had to homeschool, oh. which is something that I suppose did not occur to me until until right. well into the lockdown. And because my little one is not neurotypical, he would not accept the fact that we would be any we would have any flexibility in our school day. So they ran from 8 to 12 or 8 to 1 every day. Um, irrespective of the fact that mom is writing a book and mom is run, running a company and, and designing a product, 
Um, so I was a school teacher from, from 8 or 7.30 um, until 12 or 1 that day. And only afterwards did I start running a company, making a product. And and during the pandemic, I should probably, that's probably what added to it is we weren't one of those companies that could kind of take a break and take a, a breath because what we were doing was help teams. We opened our software for use for any team that needed it to be helpful during COVID, which meant that we had hundreds of teams come talk to us at the same time. So it was literally the busiest time in the history of the company while I was writing the book and being a primary wow. school teacher, which is what taught me I'm not superhuman, but it was still lovely and I'm glad it's, it's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, con- congrats on on finishing that and looking looking forward to reading it. Um, well, uh, Duena, thanks so much for joining the show. Um, for those listening that, that want to learn more and, and keep up with what you're doing, what's, what's the best way to, to do that? I think probably the best or the easiest way to do that is I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately in some ways I'm all over the internet. So just kind of if you if you Google Duena Bloomstone, you're going to get a lot. Uh, but just going to LinkedIn means that there are two different um, newsletters. One of them is on Mondays and Tuesdays called Chasing Psychological Safety. And the other one is The Future is Agile on Wednesdays. If you subscribe to those, you're going to get um, my writing three times a week in your inbox. And if not, just kind of drop me a message and let's have a chat and let's uh, start changing the world. Wonderful. Well, again, I'd like to thank Twina Blomstrom, uh, co-founder and CEO of People Not Tech, for joining the show. Thanks again for listening to The Agile World with Greg Kilstrom. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to The Agile World podcast brought to you by Tech Systems. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can learn more and get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, from my website at theagile.world.